Welcome back to Changing Climate, Changing Migration. This is a podcast from the Migration Policy Institute that looks at different ways that climate change is impacting migration and human movement around the world. I'm Julian Haddam, your host and the editor of NPI's online journal, The Migration Information Source, and we're publishing a special series on climate migration. In that series and in this podcast, we are diving deep into the intersection of climate change and migration and trying to explain how things are changing now and what will happen in the future. For this episode, I want to focus in on one particular area and talk about some of the changes going on there. South Asia and the Indian subcontinent are sometimes considered to be among the places that are most vulnerable to severe weather events which means that year after year, large numbers of people are being displaced and are moving to avoid some of these threats. And in response, the government has taken steps to move entire communities from one area to another. Joining me today to talk about this in much greater detail is Artishes Panda. He is a research officer at the Grantham Institute at the London School of Economics, which focuses on climate change. And he has done a lot of research on effects of climate change in Asia and South Asia in particular, He has also written a very interesting case study for our online journal about India and climate change, which you can read online. Archie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Um, So let's start by outlining some of the context. What sorts of climate events or changes are happening in India and how do these compare with what's going on other places in the world? Yes, uh, I think we all know that South Asia is one of the most vulnerable regions to the impacts of climate change, along with other countries like Bangladesh, Nepal, and Sri Lanka, which are in the top 10 vulnerable countries to climate change in the world. Along with that, India also, India has a big geography and it's quite diverse and you have, we have a lot of socio-ecological and other conditions existing in the country. So India is hit by like cyclones and typhoons are very common in the, in the country and it's also being impacted by large floods and regular droughts in large parts of India. And the recent studies, some of the recent studies on climate change that has come out has shown that, uh, especially in the case of uh, extreme precipitation events, which are on the rise in large parts of India, especially if you look at the multi-day deluge that lead to large-scale floods, are slowly increasing in India. And uh, apart from floods, also we have warmer temperature which are speeding up the glacier meltings in the Himalayas, which is also projected to increase in the future, like especially in the case of large rivers like Ganges and the Brahmaputra in the east of India. So India is one of the most vulnerable countries to the impacts of climate change, largely due to its big geography and uh, diverse ecological conditions existing in the country. And also India has a long coastline, like uh, around 7,516 kilometers of long coastline we have in India. So every year it's facing with uh, cyclones and uh, typhoons. So it's quite common. And uh, yes, so India is one of the most vulnerable countries to the impacts of climate change. And I know um, within, you mentioned, India is very large and diverse geographically. If we want to zoom in on one area in particular, you mentioned Eastern India, uh, especially kind of the the Sundarbans, which is a large watery mangrove delta uh, on the India-Bangladesh border. Uh, That's an area that has been, that has gotten a lot of focus uh, on some of the research on climate change and some of the impacts there, right? What can you say about what's going on there and how people there are impacted by climate change or how many people are impacted by climate change? Yes. 
So Sundarban Delta, which is one of the largest delta in the world and which is uh, India and Bangladesh both shares the uh, Sundarban Delta along the Bay of Bengal, which is the world's largest continuous mangrove forest. And it's also home to a wide variety of species. And if you look at the populations, nearly around about 7.5 million people who live in the region, they span from both India in, in this side to the Bangladesh on the other side. And with the impacts of climate change, we know that the global sea level is rising because of climate change impacts. And, and according to the scientific projections, it can increase as much as 23 inches in this century. By the end of this century, if we don't really control the uh, global emissions. And on the other hand, if, it, if let's say we make significant efforts to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions, so the sea level rise is still likely to rise around, likely to rise till 50, 15 inches by the end of the century. So on the one hand, in this uh, worst case scenario, which is like 59 cent, uh, centimeters or 23 inches, and on the other hand, 15 inches or 38 centimeters by the end of the century. So in either case, we are stuck in this uh, impacts of climate change already. So this is going to have a big impact on this part of the world, which is Sundarban, which is a, also a um, global biodiversity hotspot, where, uh, as I told, like nearly 7.5 million people from both India and, India and Bangladesh live there. They are dependent on the forest, the natural resources, and other uh, other services, that's, services that Sundarban is providing to them. So, so sea level rise is... Uh, going to have a big impact on the Sundarban and if you again look at the scientific projections it says that if we don't really do anything now on climate change the whole Sundarban is like likely to be inundated by mid-century or by the end of the century so huh. it's really yours. And so with we've talked in previous episodes about the distinction between fast onset events like um, like typhoons and hurricanes, which you mentioned are a threat to this part of the world, and also slower onset events like sea level rise, which is also, it seems like, a threat to this part of the world. So really, the Sundarban Delta is kind of getting hit from both sides, right? I mean, how is that? Are, what are people doing in response? Are people, are the seven and a half million people who live there, um, are they moving of their own volition? I mean, what, what kind of impact happens in result? What do people do in response to some of those threats? Yes. So in both sides of the Sundarbot Delta, in this side, India, and the other side, Bangladesh, one of the major impact has been that people are migrating mm-hmm. from the risk-prone risk areas like regular floods and with regular cyclones in the, in the place, people have started migrating. Oh, well, it's not a new phenomenon. It has been there since uh, last many decades or, decades or let's say in the last century. But due to the impacts of climate change, now the rate of migration has increased from this area. And on the top of that, there are a few places where in the last three or four decades, the islands, uh, we all know that Sundarban is a kind of, it's a kind of uh, conglomeration of a lot of islands here and there. So there are a lot of small islands in, this, in, in the whole Sundarban, Sundarban area. And in the last four or five decades, because of the impacts of climate change and the related sea level rise, a lot of this, quite a few of these uh, uh, small islands have, have vanished already from the, uh, from the from the geography. So let's say, let's focus on India. So uh, at least three islands that existed a century ago, which were covered in many groups, uh, namely it's called Lohachara, Supribaga and Bedford. These three islands from the Indian side have vanished. Oh, wow. And 
and other islands like uh, the Sagar Island, which is on also on the Indian side, had shrunk by 20 square miles since the mid-20th century. Huh. And, and people are living on these islands. Like, this is where people would have been living in the past. Yes. The three islands I told, like Lohachara, Supribhaga, and Bedford, it's already on, under the sea now. Yeah. yeah. But uh, in the, uh, I think in the 80s or 70s, some people were relocated to Sagar Island. Huh. Uh, uh, in effect of the government policies because the because the sea level was quite uh, creeping and people are facing a lot of problems because of sea level rise let's say soil salinity so the agriculture was, was being affected so some people in the mid 70s were shifted from other islands to sagar island which at that point they thought that is going to really solve the problem by shifting the people from this place to the the safe island nearby which is sagar island but then, over the last two decades, this island itself is also sinking. That's you see? Right. It's and, tragic. Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah, it's awful. And in some parts of Sundarbon, the sea is really advancing about 180 meters a year. Oh, wow. And, it's, so it's really, the sea is really encroaching in, and as you mentioned, the soil salinity. So it's not, so the sea is rising, but at the same time, the soil is becoming yet less uh, productive or you know, difficult to grow the same kind of agricultural things, it sounds like. Yes, because a lot of people are like, they are dependent on the whole natural system of Sundarbans. It's not only the sea level, right? It's also the impact that it's bringing, like, let's say, regular floods. So the households which are staying along the coast, they face regular floods. They can't really do any more fishing. They can't do agriculture, cannot do agriculture because because of soil salinity in the, in, in the agricultural fields. So tens of millions of people in the low-laying areas of South Asia, so they are being flooded annually. Uh, and India and Bangladesh, in this case, are particularly susceptible to the increasing uh, salinity of water resources, especially in the Ganges and Brahmaputra Basin. And so you talked about um, this a government effort to relocate people from one island to another. Uh, this is a, a concept called uh, managed retreat or planned relocation. Can you like how does that work? Can you walk me through some of the logistics of what happened? I mean, who makes the decisions? Yes. So managed retreat, as we are telling now, it's it's uh, not really very old. It's a new word coined very recently, not really uh, old. So over the last two decades or three decades, we have seen that uh, migration has become one of the most having neg- negative impacts on the people, as we discussed in the case of India or Bangladesh. And as per the World Bank studies, the, only in Bangladesh, more than 30 million people who are on the margins of Sundarban, they might migrate because of climate-related crisis. So in this contest, we have been talking about this concept called managed retreat, where we relocate people from risky zones to a safer place completely. And in most of the cases, this is called managed retreat because it's 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 purposeful and coordinated movement of people. So that's why it's called managed retreat. And it's not really new, very new. We have, we have seen that in the in, from many centuries, when there is a flood, people usually tend to do what they tend to do is they just go to a upland place from the place where they are facing floods, sure. right? But in this case, because of the high impact of climate change, sea level rise, and uh, uh, inundation of the of these places, the risks are so much high that people have to be relocated completely because you don't have any other choice. If the land is no more there, then how people are going to live. So managed retreat in this case is a 
it can refer to a purposeful and coordinated movement of people from the risky areas to a safe place. And who does this, like the coordination? Who's in charge of planning, okay, village X, you need to move from this island to that island? Is that a government effort or is it like the national government, a local government, NGOs, the community itself? I mean, how does it, how does it work? Well, in, in many cases, like when you talk about managed retreat, it's usually involves some kind of government's, uh, government's regulation or government intervention because you can't really shift people from uh, one place to another by, by your own because it involves the, uh, involves the questions of land rights, their livelihoods and things like this. Mm-hmm. So in, in, many of the, in most of the cases till now, not only in India, if you look at around the globe, like places like New Zealand, places like the islands of the uh, Pacific Islands, where some kinds of uh, some types of managed retreats has already happened, it's 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 the government who is really involved in this in these cases, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. mostly. And does it work? I guess what are the impacts or the repercussions of this kind of strategy? I assume that some of the people who are being encouraged to move. There's probably some pushback, right? If the government came and said, you have told me you have to leave your house, maybe where you've lived and your family has lived for generations, there might I can imagine there could be some resistance, right? Or is there embracing of that because people realize that things are no longer sustainable? I mean, yeah, what's the reaction from people from communities and households on the ground? Well, so in this case, like we know that when people have stayed in a place for like centuries, let's say over the last two centuries, they have been staying there, they are earning their own livelihoods, they are, um, they have a culture there, they have an attachment to the place there. So it's not really easy when the government tells them, okay, see the climate change impacts are increasing and this place might not be here physically if you keep staying here for longer and we, you have to move. But in this case, uh, uh, in many of the cases, for example, in India itself, so these people who are, in most cases, they are really poor, sure. who are staying on these uh, uh, fragile areas and earning their livelihood, they are poor, and they are quite attached to the place. In case of India, they, they say, I can give you the example of uh, the, the coastal state of Odisha in the, in the east, where uh, there is an example that people have been relocated from the coast to an inland area. So they were telling that, uh, till the time the god of the village is being not relocated, we are not going to leave this place. Hmm. So they are quite attached to the place, but at the end they have to they have to move from the uh, from the place because there is they have no choice. So there has been repercussions, there has been pushbacks from the people that they don't want to go, but uh, but over the time they have they have to do it. Yeah. What kind of strategies um, has the government or, or do people take, or what kind of strategies exist to? help facilitate that movement? Is it just eventually people will realize that it's no longer sustainable? Is Are there like financing that can go along with that? I mean, how do you convince someone to do something that it seems like uh, might no longer be sustainable, but which they don't necessarily want to do because they have such connection to the land and the place and their home? It, it's a mix of both. Over the years, it's uh, the learning curve of people from the increasing impacts of disaster that they realize themselves that it's no longer feasible or it's no longer viable to stay in the place and earn or live the same kind of life they used to live. So it's it's both from uh, the increasing impacts of climate change and also the uh, role of government, which is trying to push them and tell them, okay, it's no longer uh, really feasible to live here and you should leave the place. So it's kind of both ways it's working. 
And do we know, uh, have we learned either from India or from other contexts, which I want to discuss a little bit in a second, are there specific strategies that tend to work best in certain cases? I mean, what what are the lessons learned, I guess, from, from the history of managed retreat and how that can or maybe cannot be used to manage these situations? Yes. Uh, as we discussed earlier, that managed retreat is quite new and uh, it's it's really too early to judge the success, whether the, the, the managed retreat plans are successful or not because in most of the uh, cases in low and middle income countries at least, so it's very new to them. We have this concept of plant relocation earlier. Let's say, for example, in the case of dams, we know that we have built a large dams or medium-sized dams in the last half century to, uh, to, to build up the infrastructure and, and, and generate power. Where we had cases where we we used to relocate people from one place to another, but in this case, it's quite different. It's not really the case of dams and plant uh, relocation of the people. It's about climate change. So, so the context is different, and it's quite new for the low-income and middle-income countries to deal with the deal with managed relocation. So, as of now, we, we don't find much policy spe- policies specifically targeting managed retreat. We have policies in the context of disaster management, let's say. We have policies in the context of, let's say, coastal zone management. But these policies are kind of here and there. They are not, they are not really integrated in one place to really look into the question of managed retreat and the relocation of people. And, for example, in the case of Orissa, which is in the East Coast, as I told earlier, which is a cyclone-prone state and very often it faces cyclone and devastating cyclones every year, but over the years, they have developed this uh, uh, capacity of disaster management. And also, it has been uh, mentioned by many global organizations uh, as one of the most successful cases of disaster uh, disaster management. So so this kind of learning curve is, is there, but there is no specific policies till now to deal with uh, managed retreat. It's mostly, uh, mostly the initiatives by the local government. India is a federal state, we know, and we have different states in different parts. So it's it's... Until now, it depends on the federal states themselves to take the initiative and uh, and and manage the manage the uh, relocation of the people. So there is no central government policies on that. So yes, yeah, so that's the context. And you mentioned uh, New Zealand. Some places in the Pacific have also explored similar kinds of policies. I mean, how you mentioned that managed retreat is a relatively new phenomenon or new concept. I mean, how is it growing or are what countries are exploring things in line with this and how i guess what part what role do you think these kinds of policies will play going forward if as seems to be the case the impacts of climate change are going to continue to be more extreme driving or, or influencing people's movement away from uh places where they currently live well uh, I- as I told, like there are cases like in low-lying Pacific Island. Let's say I can give the example of Kiribati, which has brought land in Fiji to allow future migration from their island to there. So in New Zealand as well, there are there has been cases not only <clears throat> not in the context of uh, particularly sea level rise, but they have the context of uh, earthquake in New Zealand, where the, the mm. people have been were forced to relocate from one place to another. And uh, as I told the Fiji also, there have been cases that uh, it has brought a land. Kiribati has brought land in Fiji to allow future migration. So, so these things are slowly evolving. But if you look at the impacts of climate change for the let's say for the next uh, next uh, half century or the, by the end of the century, 
there are high chances that uh, many people are going going to be have to be relocated from these risky zones to risky areas to safe places so so it's going to increase uh, in the next uh, by the end of this century or let's say in the next coming decades and uh, and the governments will have no option but to choose managed retreat because we are already locked to a certain level of climate uh, impacts mm-hmm. so basically and, these changes are going to happen whether governments like it or not and it probably makes more sense for some of these governments to acknowledge it uh, coordinate and focus on these movements and changes to, to pre- prepare it sounds like both the host communities in which people are moving and also the migrants or the people who will be moving away from climate affected regions yes exactly so it's a policy instrument which uh, which is quite challenging it's it let's say it requires significant community buying in acceptance and planning to ensure that it puts those at risk on a new and more sustainable development paths like uh, for example in the case the people who are being relocated so it's kind of evolving policies and as, as we discussed it's kind of last resort but with the increasing impact of climate change it's going to it's going to be more reality rather than rather than uh, and choice because we don't have any choice left to uh, rather than relocating people from one place to other yeah huh. that's fascinating um i think unfortunately that about comes to our time uh but we covered a lot of ground here uh, and i learned a lot and i think there's a lot uh it seems like this is certainly a growing policy response and one that I think uh, we'll probably see more of. And uh, the case of, of India is, is really an interesting one that offers a lot of lessons, um, both for that region and for the broader world. So uh, Archie, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for talking. Yeah, thank you very much. Architesh Panda is a research officer at the LSE's Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment. There are a lot of ways that people react and move in the face of climate change. What's happening in India with managed retreat is one example, but there are still a lot of policy levers to explore. In many cases, we still don't entirely know what works and what doesn't. But as Archie demonstrated, a lot of people are going to be affected by climate events in the future, and there is a lot at stake in helping them manage their situations. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. Stay updated with every episode of Changing Climate, Changing Migration at migrationpolicy.org slash podcasts or by subscribing through your preferred podcast app. And please leave us a review as well. Uh, you can read an article about art, from Arjitesh about what's happening in coastal India as well as other analysis about climate migration online at migrationpolicy.org slash climate. And this episode was brought to you by Lisa Dixon and Kenya Guerrero with special help from Michelle Middlestadt. The music that you have heard is called Touch from Patrick Petruchios. My name is Julian Haddam. Thanks for listening. Hope to see you next time.